0: I was very active in my brother's recruiting process to the Academy. And I remember one summer vacation, we went up to the Academy as part of his recruiting trip. And, uh, I, re- I went, we went to the stadium and I ran out of the stadium, uh, out of the football tunnel. Mm-hmm. And this is imagine some little 135 pound <clears throat> sophomore or whatever in high school running out of that tunnel. And I told my dad, I said, one day I'm running out of this tunnel as right. a football player. wow, And and did my prep school time. I had to get my ACTs and SATs up, but also had an opportunity to basically redshirt um, and play football there. Had a pretty successful career there right. at the prep school, and then that rolled into opportunity to you know go through basic cadet training and and then play a, at Air Force. And one kind of closure to the running through the tunnel story. Uh, my brother found out that I was going to suit up. I got pulled up to varsity my, probably midpoint of my our freshman year. Wow. And uh, my brother calls my dad and says, hey, that little kid who ran through the tunnel is about to do it Saturday. Very my nice. My dad had a family reunion in Chicago. He switched his flight and flew out and surprised me as I ran out of the tunnel uh, my freshman year in that first game and was right there cheering me on. Welcome to the Breaking the Glass show with TQ Sinkungu.
1: Together, we'll dig inside the success stories of people of color and share those stories to inspire you. Then we'll break down their path to show you what they did so you can learn from their wisdom and follow in their footsteps. Hello and welcome to episode 25. It's TQ, your host, and I'm here with a little update that I'm changing things up a little bit this time. Normally, I have my entire episode be a single interview at the same time i've gotten a lot of feedback from folks that say hey tq we love the interviews but i wonder if we can make them shorter could you break them up into parts Uh, some folks say that it's a challenge to keep up with all the episodes because they like the full conversation and they learn a lot from the person but they want to be able to break it up a little bit see i not only like for you to learn from whoever it is that i'm interviewing I also want you to be able to get to know them in the ways that I do. Make it more personal. And at the same time, that can make the episodes really long. Now, for me, I listen to audiobooks all the time. They could be 6, 10, 12, sometimes 40 hours long of the longest ones that I've read. So for me, 90 minutes or a couple of hours is Nothing. Plus, I so enjoy having these conversations. It's so wonderful for me to get to know these folks better that, boy, I can go on and on and on. I tell you what, I even have conversations before the call that you hear, after the call is done, and even days after it's over so I can talk more and get to know more about the person. But I decided to listen to the feedback and break this one up into two parts, about an hour or so each. You can gobble it up and then wait for the next part. My guest this week is Jamie Roan. We go back a long time. We were actually roommates and classmates at the Air Force Academy. He grew up as a military brat where he developed the ability to talk to anyone and network at a very early age. In fact, his high school football coach gave him a pretty cool nickname because of it. He did go to the Air Force Academy where he played football and then graduated and served his time in the Air Force as a contracting officer. He got his master's degree in business and along the way in his career, he learned one of the important things and his lessons for him is you got to control what you can control. Those things you cannot control, forget about it. And those things that you can take massive action until you achieve the desired result. He served three tours overseas in a mix of Iraq and Afghanistan. During the course of his career, his networking led him to pick up a great mentor who became the Lieutenant General Retired, Wendy Masiello. She helped him along the way throughout the course of his career. He finished up his career working with Congress in the legislative affairs office for the Air Force. That's where he worked directly with Congress, helping them with how the Air Force could effectively spend its budget. And one of the opportunities he had while he was working there was handling the confirmation hearing for the chief of staff of the Air Force. That means he was the person who helped prepare the chief of staff, the highest ranking member of the Air Force, go in front of Congress, in front of the Senate to be confirmed by them. Some big lessons he learned along the way included how to learn, to trust, and build good teams, how to develop the art of asking effective questions in a disarming, but a confidence-building manner. And after he retired from his service in the Air Force of 20 years, he actually started his own business. He used the experience he gained in the contracting business, working with the government, to now have his own business, helping other companies that want to do business with the military. You'll learn a lot of great lessons, meet a funny, hardworking guy. So please enjoy my interview with Jamie Rohn. My guest today is Jamie Rohn. Jamie, welcome to the Break in the Glass show.
0: Thanks, TQ. Happy to be here.
1: I have just had so many good and uh, successful friends in my lifetime. And Jamie is another one that goes back a very long way, all the way back, as you might guess, to the Air Force Academy. And, um, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, Jamie, we normally start off with our lightning round background. So uh, we just do a little survey of life and times leading up to around your college years. So why don't you just give us a little flavor for how you were coming up?
0: Yeah, well, again, TQ, thanks for having me and uh, blessed and honored to be here. Um, so I'm from San Antonio, Texas, uh, raised as a military brat. And uh, although my wife will tell you that I was born in Kansas, uh, we moved around a handful of times and uh, ended up in San Antonio, Texas, uh, about my third grade year. And so my, both of my parents were military. My dad's a retired chief. My mom's a retired lieutenant colonel, gynecologist, uh, nurse practitioner. And so we called Randolph Air Force Base home. And like I said, I did that from about third grade uh, year and worked my way up at Randolph High School, home of the RoHawks. And we did everything from Pop Warner football, on base, all the way through our high school uh, athletics. And uh, it was a different type of environment because we weren't weren't out there in the normal city type thing. We were literally living on a military installation. So a lot of the things that uh, some of our friends, our mutual friends, uh, experienced just normal life growing up, I didn't have that because I was kind of sheltered on a military base there wasn't too much trouble you could get into right uh when all your family you know your parents all worked together or they would see each other at the officers club or the nco club uh so it was a really good and familial environment we would just hang out at each other's houses all the time
1: were you saying that you um you were on the base all the way from third grade through high school
0: i think we probably moved on base maybe my fourth grade year we spent a year uh just on the economy, if you will, in San Antonio and then moved on base. And that took us all the way probably to my sophomore, junior year.
1: Wow. That's kind of, I'm, I've i never heard of like a, a military child being in one place for that long. What kind of things did you say that you like didn't experience or that you, what was different, I guess, aside from the familial piece that you maybe didn't, that some of your friends who were outside of the base experienced?
0: Well, you know, you you look at, it's some of the things that go on the, the, and this may be a biased opinion, but the level of discipline, if you will, that you saw like the military schools was slightly different. And it wasn't a, my high school experience, uh, don't get me wrong, wasn't like the academy, but it was just on a military installation. But I think I can think back to one fight that I saw in my entire high school career. Right. And so, you know, we, we had another very large uh, Judson high school right off campus, right off the military installation. And, uh, that's, a weekly, if not daily occurrence sometimes mm, okay. uh, from what I've heard. And so we didn't have the drug scene. We didn't have, you know, the gang scene and a lot of the, the conflicts and just whether it's cultural conflicts or, or <clears throat> those kind of other situations we didn't have because it was just so sheltered and cultured. Our school was extremely small. You knew a lot of the same people, and I think my graduating class was 62 people. Wow.
1: That is pretty intimate. Did your um, parents and your upbringing w- did it did, did you have more discipline personally than you think most people had, or did you have to like put square corners on your bed and shine your shoes and all that kind of stuff?
0: I am the son of an Air Force chief, so absolutely. And, uh, it's a, 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 and you know, I'm not the cleanest brother on the face of the earth. Um, but it, part of that is my rebellion from, I, I've literally had to square corners since I was a young man. Uh, we've had to, you know, pull tight sheets. We've had dad taking your window seals and he drags his finger across <laughs> it to make sure that, you know, you literally clean the room. Wow. And, um, so, but I, I will say this, and my, I, Jim Rohn, my father is my, the number one hero right. on the face of the earth. So uh, I don't want to disparage anything him at all by by what I'm saying because all of that led into some of the things we'll talk about later on as far as where I am today.
1: So wh- what do you think, if there was like a hallmark or a, a kind of a vibe of what it was like growing up in a military environment like that, what kind of things do you think it shaped inside of you Looking back on it now, living and growing up in that kind of environment, because it is opposed to uh, many of the the folks who've been on the show, um, they've, they've lived in tougher circumstances, lived in environments where they, like you said, have seen people who are friends who got killed or rough school environments or single parent homes. But you had two parents, both in the military, married for a long time. It's like me. I tell people, man, I grew up in the rough streets of the suburbs of Allen, Texas, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where where we lived in a nice home. And, uh, you know, my parents, my, par- my parents, my parents are engineer and a computer programmer. And so I, I don't know, understand that life and what it was like to have it difficult. What do you think um, kind of things that shaped in you to live in that environment where you did have some more sort of uh, stability as well as discipline?
0: Yeah, no, I, I I absolutely can can relate to your upbringing and and, and I tell people I am unapologetic about that and I'll get to your question I I am a product of two parents from inner cities um, my mom is from inner city Chicago dad's from inner city Philadelphia and the military was their ticket out of the hood right a a more wealthy black family actually sponsored and gave my mom a scholarship. To go to nursing school and that's the only way she got out and they both joined the military at successful careers and we are products and we are living and starting on their shoulders standing on their shoulders uh so i tell people i am i'm extremely unapologetic about uh, what my parents have accomplished And I, I, as Warren Buffett would say, I simply won the gene pool lottery by being born into their home. But the key takeaways to your question that I, that I really relish is discipline and a respect for people. Mm. And, uh, the discipline part, I think we've already talked about it. Yes, sir. No, ma'am. I still talk to people and maybe it's my parents. Maybe it's just the Texas upbringing. Always. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And, uh, the other part is respect, um, you know, we as Texans TQ, we talk to people when we walk into a room, when you see people, you greet people and that's just the proper way we're all brought up. Right. Um, but I, I remember a young man, a friend of ours, I'll keep him nameless, walked into our house and I guess he was having a bad day and he walked in to go see my brother and I so we could play. We might've been in the seventh or eighth grade, but he walked into the house, walked right past my dad and my dad's, you know, classic picture him in his lazy boy recliner didn't speak. My dad said, excuse me, young man, are you going <laughs> to speak when you enter my house? Mm. And the young man kept walking up the stairs. Uh-oh. And uh, bad my dad— move. Yeah, bad move. Jim Rohn gets out of his chair, calls the young man back down, escorts him back out of the house, and says, you can try this again, but you're not entering into my house until you speak to me. Right. And for whatever reason, here I am, just turned 43. That was, you know, 30 years ago. I'll never forget. I've never forgotten that moment. Right. Wow.
1: That's a, that's a heck of a story, man. I actually, it's crazy, man, these days because I know my, like my niece is, you know, she, I have three boys, so you know, you're kind of rough with your boys, but then there's my niece who, whenever she comes over, we play and have fun and I'll tickle her and re- wrestle her. But if she doesn't listen to me when I say to stop doing something and she's three, I'll get her like, Hey, you know, I'll call her by her name and say, Hey girl, I'm talking to you right now, you need to do X, Y, Z, or I yeah. asked you a question. I want to hear a yes, sir.
0: The old TQ comes out.
1: No, yeah, the old TQ, or the, like the Texas thing, like you're saying. Right. And, or like if her mom, you know, just the other day, her mom was telling her something that she's kind of running away from her. I'm like, Hey, listen to your mom and what she's saying. And I'm saying that cause I think that's not a normal thing that happens anymore these days. Like people are scared to sort, at least this is my experience. People seem like they don't want to tell other people's kids what to do and kids kind of are starting to run the world, so to speak, is upside down. But you seem like you're in an environment where that was definitely not the case.
0: That was definitely not the case. You're absolutely right. And and I agree with you. I I think that's part of what's wrong with what's going on in society. When you and I were, when I was running around the streets of San Antonio, you were growing up in Dallas, you know, it was nothing for, if I acted up, for your mom to check me. yeah. And that was just the norm. That was expected. It happened many a times. And nowadays, you get an adult checking another kid. Not only will the kid act out, but sometimes the parent will act out. Right. Of why are you checking my kid? Because he needed to be checked.
1: Right. Um, one that's that's a real deal, man. And and one other thing I wanted to was curious about is what is a rohawk? That sounds like is that like a but, chicken you know, hawk?
0: Well, no, no, we're not going to we're not going <laughs> to clown the we mock what we don't understand. Um, no, um, no, it, it's a very good question. It's one that we often get. Um, I, the quick answer is, man, I have no earthly idea. Hey, yeah. um, the our mascot is actually a hawk on a rocket, uh-huh. and um, and I, I have no idea where they got it from, but it's it's kind of a a combination of a hawk and a rocket. Okay. A okay. horrible explanation, but uh yeah. So Hard you're saying what you're saying is
1: is it could be a chicken hawk, but you ain't sure.
0: Yeah, and I'm <laughs> um I'm just I'm too prideful to admit that it's a chicken hawk. Yeah,
1: exactly. Well listen man, what about you you were in the military environment growing up, um and some people may want to not keep that going. What you ended up going to the Air Force Academy, that's obviously where you and I met. What made you decide to take that route for college?
0: Yeah, no, and that great question, and that goes to sports and and the family. Clearly, the military family grew up and bred in that. My, I've uh, got an older sister, two older brothers, and I'm the baby of the family. Uh, my older brother John went off to the academy, was a football player, but he he was and is extremely instrumental in my life and and he will come up multiple times in this story and uh he was the big football star in texas and all state and all that kind of stuff mm. and um i, I kind of grew up in his shadow yeah and um quick side story i mean we had one guy when my brother graduated high school came up to me and said hey you've got some big shoes to fill i don't know how you're gonna do it and then mm. he pats me on the back and walks away
1: wow that's fun that's and, nice.
0: And again, another story that 25 years later, 30 years later, I still remember and never forget. But what that did was create this huge fire to prove that gentleman wrong. And yes, I still know his name and I still remember where we were. Hmm. And part of that fire and that drive that led me to the academy through sports uh, was there. Another key part that led me to the academy is – I was very active in my brother's recruiting process to the Academy. And I remember one summer vacation, we went up to the Academy as part of his recruiting trip. And, uh, I, I went, we went to the stadium and I ran out of the stadium, uh, out of the football tunnel. Mm-hmm. And this is imagine some little 135 pound <clears throat> sophomore or whatever in high school running out of that tunnel. And I told my dad, I said, one day I'm running out of this tunnel as right. a football player. Wow! And My parents were always, always, always key on building us up and confidence. And my dad looked me in the eye and he says, if you work hard enough, you'll be here one day. Mm, That's cool. And so eventually that led to recruiting and, you know, working hard in sports and whatnot and got accepted to the prep school and did my prep school time. I had to get my ACTs and SATs up, but also had an opportunity to basically redshirt um, and play football there. Had a pretty successful career there right. at the prep school, and then that rolled into opportunity to you know go through basic cadet training and and then play a, at Air Force. And one kind of closure to the running through the tunnel story, uh, my brother found out that I was going to suit up. I got pulled up to varsity my probably midpoint of my our freshman year wow and uh, my brother calls my dad and says hey that little kid who ran through the tunnels about to do it saturday my dad had a family reunion in chicago he switched his flight and flew out and surprised me as i ran out of the tunnel uh, my freshman year in that first game and was right there cheering me on that's pretty
1: cool that's really that's a cool story man i i similarly Um, So I grew up in Allen, Texas, where, you know, it's it's voted this last year by Money Magazine, like the number one city, number one city in Texas, number two city in America to live in currently. So that kind of tells you how privileged, if you will, of a city that I grew up living in. I was often the only black person in my class, as was my older sister. And she also, as you know, was, uh, I think, a year behind your brother at the air force academy too so there was even like a a article in our local paper about me following in her footsteps so it was kind of like same thing i always had these these footsteps to fill in and my little quote in the article that i'll never forget was i said i'm not following in her footsteps i'm blazing my own trail amen (laughs) and and you know the funny thing i think about now is like that's just me as a kid trying to do my you know put my own path down but my trail I was blazing was like right behind her trail (laughs) you know so no doubt in a lot of ways she did pave the way for what I was doing and I definitely appreciate it like I'm sure you do
0: Uh, indeed indeed
1: so what's um the Air Force Academy once you got there you had sports um what was the experience like for you in terms of for a lot of folks it's a challenging time academically you know with the military pressures that are there um what what was it like for you in terms of um, having your way that you got through it, following your brother's footsteps, and those types of things.
0: Yeah, I, um, it was it, the, the academy is a challenge, right? So you're a grad, I'm a grad, my wife, my my in-laws, uh, Stephen, Candace, Pipes, we're all grads. But everybody's experience, in my opinion, is slightly different. And one of the the things for my unique challenge at the academy is halfway through my freshman year. You know, you're balancing academics, you're balancing the military rigor and just getting used to that. And I was never the strong student growing up. But then I find out halfway through that my then girlfriend was pregnant. Mm. And so I then end up going through having a son my sophomore year. So I had a made a very challenging situation. And by all means, I think the academy is a challenge, but I made it even harder Um, because then I had to balance, how do I, as a young man, as a kid, you know, who thinks he's a man, step up and and try to be a parent. Right. And clearly there were a lot of mistakes made. There are a lot of lessons learned, which my son now, Eric, who's 22, uh, we talk about it and we've learned, we've learned together and grown together over the years. Right. So it was definitely a challenge. Academics were, you know, as well as I do, that was a, a hard stretch for me. Um, but it got better as we, clearly as you go from your freshman year through, uh, you get, you get the, you realize that the academy, just like the Air Force and just like a lot of life, is a series of systems. Yeah. And once you understand the system and understand the rules of the game, then you can actually start to win and make plays. And that's what helped me. I remember
1: a uh, little EQ, man, and his, is from when he was a baby, now him being a college graduate, you definitely... Succeeded in all parents. I mean, I had my first son. Uh, I was probably 35 when I had my first son. So, right. I, And I still was figuring out, man, and learning. Right. So it's, you know, whether it's uh, that young, 18, 19, 20, or 35, it's still always a challenge. Um, and then, like you said, though, you you still navigated your way through figuring out the systems. If you could uh, talk to a cadet right now who either is struggling with academics or hasn't figured out that system yet... What is the key to succeeding academically in such a rigorous environment cuz a lot of people listening may be going to top schools or things like that even if it's not the academy and not have the system figured out yet what are some keys you think to figuring out the system
0: I think it starts one with a fundamental belief in yourself um you you had Russ McCrae on one time he talked about uh you know how to how to gain confidence and how to maintain confidence yeah. in yourself I went there not thinking that I could make it so I didn't believe in myself enough mm-hmm. that I didn't believe that I belonged academically at the academy and so one if you're there whether it's, there is the academy whether it's Harvard whether it's you know whatever school insert you know state school um you're there because God put you there and believes that you're there he didn't bring you this far only to bring you this far and so it starts with a fundamental belief in yourself and gaining and maintaining that that belief two it's back, and I'll probably say this a few times. I, I, I'm a systems thinker, and un- you have to understand in whatever environment you are—military uh, deployment, <clears throat> command leadership, civilian, whatever—you have to figure out the game and, and and or system. There's always a system there, and you have to figure out the rules of those games. So, for us at the academy, <clears throat> we tutoring was called EI or extra instruction. So, get your butt there. Right. It's. You know, you understand human dynamics. It is harder to fail somebody that you know is busting their tail trying. Yeah. It's a lot easier if you're a teacher, instructor, um, still human, the human side of them, when you know that guy is in your office every day busting his butt, doing the work, putting in the work. It's a lot easier to get the benefit of the doubt. Right. And uh, I, I don't know a quick side story, you know, taking biology, you had Joe Poe on the cl- on, on your podcast before, and she was helping me, tutoring me in biology, and mm-hmm. I just couldn't get it. And I, I went to EI and tutoring with the instructor, and finally I just remember telling him, look – if there's some way you can help me get past this class, I promise you, I'll never touch another biology class ever. <laughs> and somehow I ended up with like a C minus D plus right. and I've kept my promise to that instructor. There and you go. I've not touched another biology class ever.
1: <laughs> so no medical school for you or anything like that, huh?
0: No, nah, bro. No, not at all. I watched Grey's Anatomy and that's about the extent of it.
1: I heard that, man. Well, a lot, there are all kinds of challenges to make it through and, and obviously- Academics, you persevered through that. And I think I'm hopeful that people take lessons like that early because I too, you know, I was actually strong academically, but I think, like you said, it's that belief system. It's an environment where I struggled my first couple of years or about a year, year and a half. And, um, but then, like you said, kicked it in, going to get help, humbling yourself to know it's okay to tell the teacher I don't understand. Particularly right. for sometimes for students who've done well and are struggling, it's hard to start thinking now I need help um, and thinking that that's a, an OK thing to say. Um, right. But then also getting that extra help does push you through. So
0: can I jump in on one thing? Because this is another part. Sure. Is surrounding yourself by pe- with people who are better than you and who will lift you up and push you. And what I mean by that is we were very blessed and fortunate to have a a family around us. That pushed each other and held each other to very, extremely high standards, whether it be physically, mentally, professionally, um, militarily, and and another one of those things I'll never forget, and I will and I'll take it to my dying day, is you telling, having a conversation with me probably back in 1996, where you were like, well, why, why don't you, why aren't you on the dean's list? Mm. And I think my response was something effective the effect of, yeah, I don't do that,
1: mm.
0: and you called me out on my junk because you were like, it's a mindset, you can do it. So we made a deal that I was going to try. And what you told me at that point was to get on the Dean's list, you know, from a, I don't know, maybe a 2.5, uh, GPA uh, guy is, it doesn't take a hundred percent more effort. It really just takes five or 10% more focused effort. Yeah. And so I committed to you that I was going to try that for one semester. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. And that was the start probably the beginning of my our junior year for me getting on the dean's list and pretty much staying on that now admittedly it also helped that we were in our majors courses in the management major so i was more focused and interested in things you know as opposed to aerodynamics thermodynamics and all that stuff it helped that i was in you know my my little niche area but i think back to what i said originally the mindset piece of that believing that you can do that Yeah. It really, that light bulb, that was a seminal moment for me to just realize, OK, I can do this.
1: Well, I was proud, man, because I thought and this is like a, this is like a real deal thing. I think sometimes um, as people of color and, and maybe black people in particular, I don't know. But we, you know, I, I challenged a lot of the cast in our class because I was struggling early, but then was able to pull it together. And we were all great. Like you guys challenged me with both athletics and military ranking. Um, because I had gotten a little bit jaded at the time about the whole military process, but and you guys were succeeding in command positions there. And so that pushed me and I thought, well, if we're going to be examples in military, let's be examples in academics too. So it was a mutual push and and, right. and having that conversation with all, with all of our family, all of the, the brothers we were kind of rolling together with. Um, I think it was a good thing for all of us to push each other to yeah, to absolutely. be the best we could, you know?
0: And we continue to do that to this day, for sure. And and that's that's the beauty of of those relationships and that family.
1: Well, you did achieve um, a number of leadership positions at the academy, actually in charge of training all the basic cadets, uh, you know, in basic training for for half of their whole training period while they were there, um, and and got a lot of credibility and responsibility as a as a cadet. Um, and then and and I think at that point is when I noticed looking back now that you have a strong ability to in networking, can you talk about how important it is for you and perhaps also how natural it is for you to try to build useful, let's call it professional connections in order to achieve the goals that you want to achieve?
0: Yeah, no, I, I, whether it's academics or whatever, I, I typically, even in business today, uh, I, I tell people, "Hey, you're dealing with a product of Texas public schools with a ninth grade reading level," and uh, so I, I view myself as just a very—I you know, I, don't—I oh, don't think overly highly of my abilities, um, and I think it's partly as I was growing up, I had to work that so hard, so I, I look to leverage and build teams. To help with areas that I'm weak in, mm-hmm. and so I'm constantly reaching out to people to say, "Okay, you're good at accounting, you're good at this, your attention to detail." I'm a big picture guy, but I think one the team building part is is natural for me. Uh, when I was back in Pop Warner football, my coach Al Hollins used to give out you know names nicknames to everybody halfway through the season. Right. And, uh, you know, I wanted a name like Tank or The Rock or, you know, (laughs) and I'll never forget. I got this, this, you know, he did the unveiling and I'm all ready for this name. And uh, he gave me Charmer. Oh. And I mean, cue the you want to want, (laughs) want, want, start (laughs) crying because that wasn't the cool name. Like Charmer, what is that? Absolutely. And he says, you have an ability to talk to anybody. Yeah. And so what you learn over the years is, you know, I I think that is a gift. Um, And I'm a huge relationships guy. And and that is the reason for any, whatever degree of success I may have had uh, to date is the people around me. And, um, but when I look back on that moment, Al Holland saw something in me you know, that I do care for people. I'm passionate about people. I'm passionate about hearing the, the lesser of these out and giving them a voice. And so he saw that in me when I was a little, I don't know, 10, 11 year old running around Randolph Air Force Base playing Pop Warner football. Right. But it was it was very truthful. And I think it definitely has helped me. It helped me throughout my military career. And it's helping me to this date. So networking, being actively engaged, and part of that is giving to the network, not simply looking to receive from the network.
1: Now that makes sense, and I wanna maybe return to that theme as we kind of talk through your career, because now you've graduated from the academy and you went into a career as a contracting officer. Um, A couple of folks have been on before who've had that career field, and if in two or three sentences you were to describe, what a contracting officer is, what, what would you say that is?
0: A contracting officer is the person that has the legal authority to enter into a contract on behalf of the United States government. Okay. And so what that means is we buy all the things that the United States government, United States Air Force, cannot organically make. Right. Right. Got it. And so so it's anything from the guys cutting the grass to your electrical utilities to buying the brand new F-35 jet. Got it. The contracting officer is there signing that contract.
1: Now, um, you had a, a long, distinguished career. And I want to hit some of the highlights. Um, the first couple of years you were at at you went back to Randolph, right back home to San Antonio. How did you pull that off and what was that experience like? Yeah, the, the key
0: reason for that is, um, you know, I told you I had. Eric was there in San Antonio, so I needed to get back home uh, to be there to start becoming a dad, right? And being there and being able to take him to school and spending time with him. So was able to do that and uh, started. It. It's amazing when you grow up in a, on a base and then you you go back stationed on a base. Your perspectives change completely when you start paying bills in a city. Sure. And so it was interesting having the perspective of a young kid at San Antonio and a young adult in San Antonio. Mm. Um, so I did some time in San Antonio where I learned the ropes of contracting. Uh, pilots go through uh, undergraduate pilot training, or UPT, it's about a year program. Uh, the contracting training pipeline, or UPT, if you will, is about two to three years. Oh, wow. And it just takes that much time. <clears throat> to understand the regulations and to actually get and get some experience under your belt of negotiating contracts. So I spent that first three years there um, in San Antonio and uh, was headed off to, got selected for an intern program working with Hewlett Packard out in uh, California, Sacramento, California. Right. And uh, in route to that, uh, we found out Eric came down with a rare form of kidney cancer. Mm. And so the I military, yeah. So the I military, always still think
1: about you explaining to him having like a football around his kidney
0: yeah we we had a nerf football sized tumor off of his left kidney mm. <clears throat> uh 11 surgeries and a couple of rounds of chemo and radiation later um we we ended up the you know kudos to the military i mean they took care of us walked us through that process but um my military family i was literally moving out of my house that day Um, my office, they grabbed everybody, grabbed dustpans, brooms, mops, and went and cleared my entire house for me, Mm. uh, while I was in the hospital with Eric. And so it took about a year, year and a half for us to go through the chemo and radiation process.
1: Let me, let me slow you down and pause you for a second. And that, like, as a parent, um, now I can't, you know, I have a six, four and a two year old. I can't imagine what it would be like getting that news. Um, how are you able to, to persevere, through that time? Like what, what, what was like a key a, a strength that you leaned on to make it through that?
0: I would say faith, faith and family. And when I say family, I'm not talking about just my blood family. It was great that my blood family, uh, was there. Right. Um, but, uh, faith in God and a lot of, a lot of support and, and friends. Uh, that's, I mean, that was a pivot. I mean, that morning when I woke up, I had no idea what a Wilms tumor was. That mm-hmm. night when I went to bed, I sure as hell knew what one was. Yeah, And so it, it's amazing how your life can pivot. And this is why we don't take a single day for granted. It's amazing how your life can pivot in a nanosecond. Yeah. And and that's what it did that day. So it's, I mean, you're scared to death. You know, you you don't even know. This was really, I mean, it was, early internet, but I mean, literally I had somebody printing out everything they could find on a Wilms tumor and brought me this huge stack of papers and a notebook. And I just started reading. And, uh, we, we were fortunate because since it's a kidney cancer, it's typically contained within a, a, a membrane, like a water balloon and his didn't burst. Um, so, so relatively fortunate, but the, yeah, it's it's your faith and and it's your family, your network uh, that gets you through these things because it, it's too much for any any one person to do on their own. Wow, that's um, it's, it's, that's really strong, man. And
1: and and I'm saying good, like like I didn't know the end of the story, and I don't know he's he's 22 today, college with your grad, like I said, you know, hardworking young man. So we're I'm definitely thankful. We're always thankful that he made it through all that. Um, yeah, your your contracting career led you through San Antonio, um, out to even New York city and then to the, one of the big locations for the air force, right? Patterson, uh, Ohio. Um, what were some of the big, uh, highlights that you had moving along that process?
0: Well, I think realizing you know, New York, when the economic capital of the world that gave me an appreciation for, yeah, I'm this business thing that I've always been passionate about. That's, that's really cool. And I like to go back there every few years just to kind of breathe the air and take it in. Um, so amazing experiences out there, uh, going out to, in between uh, New York and Wright Pat, I went to grad school. It's an able postgraduate school. And there I had a professor, John Shank, who instilled in me that I had a good business mind and that I was good enough. Yeah. And, uh, interestingly enough, he, Literally taught George Bush Jr. in his MBA program Mm -hmm. and uh, has taught a lot of famous people. And so to have, you know, my as we talked about earlier in my academic career where I was growing in confidence in my my cognitive abilities or my academic abilities to have the John Shank, you know, tell me, hey, you're good enough and you've got an amazing mind for this stuff. Uh, was very confidence inspiring and and just continued to fuel that passion unfortunately, literally, I, I graduated in december of o five and in January of o six he died of a massive heart attack. Uh-huh. Um, but he is an amazing man, and uh, I tried to keep his you know he, his words still just grind into my head over and over so that was an amazing experience. Wright Patterson, uh, I'll never forget, had an opportunity to meet a Colonel Wendy Maciello, and who mentored me uh, on just a one day session. And that, for whatever, I don't know what I said during that mentorship, hmm. but she then took me under her wing. Hmm. And every career path uh, from there on out uh, has her fingerprints on it. And she is uh, the greatest, one of the greatest leaders, not the greatest leader that I've ever worked for. And uh, she is a retired three-star general now, wow. and uh, we stay in touch. But I can look at her her silent fingerprints throughout my career. She never took credit for it. She is never. If she was on right now, she would say, "Hey, I, I didn't do anything. but give you a little bit of opportunity." Yeah, it well, It pays to have a patron in Absolutely. your corner. Absolutely right.
1: Um, and it, so speaking of that, did you cultivate that relationship with her in terms of? getting her help but or was it more like you said you just you just did a great job and everything else kind of came after
0: the fact well that, that's a key question Quan because I, I'm a I am passionate about networking I read about it and I love it and, and that's part of the game and understanding the game some people network to get something out of it to where it's kind of like a chessboard I'm gonna do this and then I'm gonna do this and then I'm gonna do this um, the meeting I had with general Massiello. I, didn't, I wasn't smart enough to foresee that she was gonna be a three-star general. Right. I was doing a mentorship meeting and it was probably a 30-minute meeting and for whatever reason, things clicked. And then it started with one opportunity. And uh, I, I wasn't one to plan out the next 20 years or next 15 years of my career, um, but you get one opportunity and you do the best you can, make plays, outwork everybody in the building, and then that leads to another opportunity and then again, back to the systems, you make plays, outwork everybody, do what's right, do your best. And then that leads to the next opportunity. And pretty soon uh, you get this track record of success and and you just start meeting more mentors and more mentors who take care of you and, um, and help just exposing you to more and more opportunity.
1: It seems like to, you know, one thing I heard in there that people might slide by is you be the best in the building. Right. A lot of times, folks, I hear or see them talk about how they're getting taken advantage of. Um, or even me, sometimes I've talked about how I, I was, you know, not getting all the opportunities I felt like I deserve. When I right. look back, I have to say, was I one of the best performers in that situation? Was I at the top of my game or was or for other people that I, you I asked them the question, were you one of the top people? Could they have called on you to do anything? If the answer is no, it's hard to justify you getting some extra opportunity, um, or if you're working so hard that they can't deny your effort and try to help pull you over the the the, the line, just like you had with the extra instruction way back at the academy. Um, you know that's a key piece of maximizing those relationships that you develop. It seems to me that was what one of the highlights for you too.
0: It, it really is, and and it goes back to you know Jim Rohn 101. My father again is you control the things that you can control. Yeah. Um, life sometimes is binary. If you can't control it, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. Mm. All you're going to do is worry about it. Bible says don't worry about it. Um, if you can do something about it, the other side of that coin, then do something about it and take massive action until you get the result that you want mm. or until you get enough information that you then pivot to another direction. Either way, you're still taking massive action to achieve what you need.
1: No, that's that, that's that's pretty powerful, man. I um I wanted to hit two more things in your Air Force career that I think were pretty key. <clears throat> One of those is your time in deployment. Um, and you had a number of deployments. I think at least three, three deployments. Great. Um, and in Afghanistan and Iraq, I tell people all the time when they ask if I was in military, I was like, I I was not in the real military. I was in <laughs> Los Angeles Air Force Base you know, working in an air-conditioned building with tough deployments to Silicon Valley, you know, to work at Lockheed. Um, but y- you were both in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I, I always remember you telling me a story about riding between two Marines uh, to go to go do something while you were out there. Can you talk about that story? And then just maybe a, a couple key things you learned, you know, being a, a person deployed as a contracts officer out in the theater of Iraq and Afghanistan.
0: Yeah, no, I, um, I, I, I had three deployments, like you said, two to Baghdad, one to Afghanistan, went to Iraq first in 2008, uh, arrived there. And, uh, you know, you only know what we knew on TV. So this guy shows up to pick me up in this, uh, vehicle and he's walking around, doesn't have any body armor. I'm like, what are you doing? You know, I'm the idiot with all my body armor, my helmet, <laughs> you know, suited up, ready to play coach. And, um, Then you realize that I'm in this huge base called the Victory Base Complex. Yeah. And uh, most of the time we don't walk around. Uh, You are armed, which is a different, you know, something to be aware of. Um, But you really don't put all that stuff on until you go outside, what we call outside of the wire, outside of the fence line. Um, So oftentimes, because the banking system, if I did a contract locally in the United States, we just pay you electronic funds, transfer. That doesn't work too well in Baghdad. Right. They don't trust their economic system under Saddam Hussein, and so it didn't work too well. So, yeah, now I'm with you. Um, So we had to go down. We finished a young project, a small project where we developed a school, a training program, kind of like a technical school Mm -hmm. with automotives and all that kind of stuff. Our mindset at the time was a working Iraqi is not building bombs. Right. So if we can get him a job, get him training, get him doing some money, he may not – seek to make money elsewhere right and so we went out and typically when i went out as a as probably from a deployed perspective a junior or mid to junior grade officer uh, i think i was a major at the time um i was assigned a couple couple guys that were there everywhere i went they shadowed me if i had to go to the bathroom they cleared the bathroom before i went to the bathroom but uh to your story we were literally going and uh you're looking in a truck And uh, you're driving in this truck, and you look up, and out of the front windshield, there are these shattered glass. Still intact, right? But they're shattered glass, and the driver's just driving right through it. And I'm like, what happened? And they're like, oh, truck just got hit yesterday. Like, you know, that's when in your head you're like, uh, define the word hit, you know? (laughs) Right? Um, Yeah, we just took a few shots, but we're okay. We were close to to an IED that went off, didn't take a direct hit, kind of got a little head bang, but that's it. Oh my god. And they gosh. just keep going. And and what that tells you is is the appreciation for these young soldiers, airmen, marine, who are out there leading these convoys every day, even to this day. That that's what they go through and then they just talk about it. Yeah, we took a little blast yesterday.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and on top of that, for you to go buy stuff for say this program, you're not doing electronic funds transfer. You're carrying around literal briefcase you, full, you of, are. full of cash.
0: You are. And that's the and that's the part of it where you know that we we used to talk in the contracting world as money as a weapon system, yeah, that you can clearly influence actions in the battlefield with money. Yeah, now it needs to be controlled. It needs to be handled in a ethical, moral way, but you can absolutely, in those in Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts, influence strategically influence the mindset of folks by changing the economics and changing, by providing opportunities.
1: Did you feel like, like, uh, like he was a big time dude with all this cash he was rolling around with when he was like you, that, like he was a big you, baller.
0: You, you get that first, that feeling the first time you look at it, because I mean, l- make no mistake. It's when you see a dollars, you know, in stacks, it, it's, you know, you, you take it back, you take it back. I, I didn't grow up that good. Um, <laughs> so, you see that and you, it's still, it is a big deal. Um, you, you tend to, as you cross that line of going outside the wire, you're all pitted up, you're armed up. Uh, you're, you're not thinking about that anymore. Right, You're thinking about accomplishing the mission. Exactly. You're focused on the mission. And you know, at that point, I'm not personally carrying the money, my guy's carrying the money. right? And so it's, you, you, so you're still, you're constantly thinking, and I think that's the leader's job is to be thinking two or three steps ahead What's going on? What are we going to do when we get there? What's the objective? You know, how do I control Anytime you open? And I, I mean, it's not, I was going to say in Iraq or Afghanistan, if you open up in downtown San Antonio, 200 a backpack with $200,000, you're going to attract a crowd. Right. right. And so how do I control that situation? And uh, so you're constantly in think mode. Um, and, and not really like, oh my gosh, I've got all this money. Well, you
1: you had a, definitely a long, distinguished career in the Air Force and um, had a number of awesome contracting opportunities. And then you finished up your career working in D.C. as a legislative liaison, uh, which is basically working for the Secretary of the Air Force and working and interacting with the Senate. Can you talk about in detail, a little bit of detail, what was that experience like? Uh, relative to the rest of your career and and, and what are some kind of cool things you did in that experience?
0: Yeah, I think as I mentioned before, all all roads of my career success uh, lead back to one uh, Lieutenant General, Wendy Massiello. And uh, so I was coming out of Baghdad on my last appointment in 2014, I believe. And uh, she's like, Hey, what are we going to do with you? And uh, ma'am, I will continue to go wherever you tell me to go. And she's like, what do you think about this thing called ledge affairs? And at the time, and even to this date, Air Force has had one contracting officer position in an organization called Air Force Legislative Affairs Division yep and that reports directly to Secretary of the Air Force and what our role is is to inform to develop relationships, inform, and where we can influence the development of the National Defense Authorization Act mm-hmm. of any given year <clears throat> and um, the National yeah. Defense Authorization Act is that is the the there's two preeminent laws that that develop and authorize and and appropriate or fund uh, the federal government so the analogy I typically like to use is uh, young Titus comes to you and says dad can I go to the movies yep you saying yes you can go to the movies at seven o'clock you have just authorized him to go to the movies okay now Titus has a problem right Titus has no money right. So then Titus is still standing there and says, Dad, now I need $20. I wish it was $20. I need $20 to go to the movies. At the time you hand him the money, you have now appropriated him or funded him to go to the movies. So in order for our military to operate the way we're used to it operating, you have to have an authorization or a mission. In this case, go to the movies. And you also have to have the appropriation or the funding so you can pay for the movies your popcorn and your drink.
1: And so all the money that's spent for in your case the Air Force, you basically were the link between the Air Force and Congress who authorizes all that money and and, and allocates it to to make sure that it was done and spent and all the, and, and allocated appropriately?
0: Yes. The legislative the the legislative affairs division. So we handled the authorization part. Yes, Titus, you can go to the movies where another organization SAP uh, and FMB handled the appropriation side. Wow. So by law, we have to keep those two separate. Sure. And so we handled the NDAA part, National Defense Authorization side, and what that meant was for me as an acquisition guy was all things related to acquisition reform, uh, federal acquisition laws that um, that end up being regulations, and being that liaison to in our case, the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee right. uh, staffers so that we can accomplish the the goals and objectives of the Air
1: Force. So w- in real life, what did that mean you were up to on the day-to-day?
0: Day-to-day, you realize
1: <clears throat> that, and, and there are some uh, pretty cool parts of it, too. So you yeah, can talk yeah, about no those.
0: Doubt. No doubt. You, you, the best advice I ever got going into ledger affairs was getting on Twitter. Uh, originally I originally said, yeah, I don't do social media. And they are like, get there. Hmm. And so- you realize that, that, like they said in the movie, Wall Street, the most important commodity I know of is information. Mm-hmm. Um, it is amazing how something would break on the news and within hours we would get the hill, the hill as we call it, Capitol Hill, staffers calling us for information. Mm. Um, you realize, again, back to what I've said before, you've got to understand the game. And uh, Major General, now Lieutenant General Guns Bergeson, another great Air Force leader who's running the Air Forces in Korea right now said became a student of this game yeah and so so
1: what what kind of stories would be breaking that you get calls about
0: um anything from an airplane went down yeah um you look a couple years ago we had in one in one uh matter of like a week or if not a month we had a blue angel crash we had an and killed a blue angel pilot we had a Thunderbird crash on final approach, hmm. leaving the Academy graduation. And we then had a series of this plane crashes. And that was linking back to um, the readiness of our pilots and and the the, the shelf tempo. life of our the ops tempo and the shelf life of our aircraft. Oh. You know, we've been coming out of sequestration where the defense budgets were severely uh, decreased um, by that deal with the devil that was made by Congress. Or really, Congress and administrations, and so the the budgets were severely cut 2012 2013 timeframe, and then there had there were some lagging effects on the force. When you cut flight hours, you cut money to replace equipment. We're using older equipment, and and whatnot. You a few years later start to see the impacts of those decisions, and so Congress was trying to get to the root cause of why are all these planes crashing. Um, for a contracting guy, you know, why does it take so long to award a contract? You know, why are the 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 lobbyist and industry side telling us that on average, it takes you 18 months to award a contract? And do you understand how much money Air Force that these companies are investing in bid and proposal costs and proposal development costs and all that kind of stuff? Um, you realize how expensive it is, to do business with the government. And you understand how many companies are deciding not to do business with the government and thus impacting our technological advantage.
1: Right. Yeah, I know that's and then they want to know how that's going to spin forward, I'm sure.
0: Oh, spin forward. And clearly, you got to understand the game. I mean, yes, they're doing it um, because they care about their country and their passion. And I believe that with the vast majority of the Haskins, Sask uh, members and their staffs. Um, But they're also doing it because they want to get jobs in their districts.
1: Right. Yeah. And get reelected, I'm sure. And get
0: reelected. I mean, they they say, you know, the number one rule in politics is to get elected. The number two rule in politics is to get reelected. There you go.
1: Well, you so you had like this high pressure, high profile position that you dealt with along the way. And that's sort of where your your career came to a close on, on sort of a high note working in this in this high power position. I know you had the chance to work like with the Senator John McCain and <clears throat> excuse me, you also were doing things like preparing the ch- deputy chief of staff for the air force for his Senate confirmation. And um, talk about some of those high profile things that you got the chance to be involved in.
0: Yeah. I mean, to be a fly on the wall um, with meetings with Hask chairman Thornberry and, SASC, and Hask, chairman, again as the house Hask, armed service committee. Correct. House armed services committee, SASC being the Senate armed services committee with John McCain being the chairman um, to just sit there, be a fly on the wall in meetings and listen to those guys. And, and just to see, and and make no mistake, I'm not the one leading meetings with those guys. Sure. I'm just, I'm just there, but you're in uh, a
1: seat and you're next to the seats of real power that we just see on just on TV. Most of us.
0: Right. Right. And, and uh, to that note, I mean the, I think the culminating uh, event was uh, boss came and said, Hey Rhino, I go by Rhino um, need you to, Run this um, Senate confirmation for General Goldfein, who's the current Chief of Staff of the Air Force. Wow! And so,
1: and um, run this Senate confirmation means
0: uh, get him confirmed by the Senate.
1: That's crazy. That's crazy that that's your that was your job at the time. That's yeah. awesome.
0: And the thing is, when you go back, and there's no book that tells you how to do that. Right. And so we went to the Army, who General Milley had just been confirmed. We went to the uh, Joint Staff, figure out how he, how they did it. And, um, again, back to the systems of the system, there is a system and a way of doing
1: this. Yeah.
0: So we found out with the army, General Milley as, you know, kind of a personality like I do, where he's very outgoing and personable. So he met with every single member of the, of the SASC, mm. the, of the Senate Armed services committee, 26 members. And he literally made a relationship. And so mm. we mapped out that model off after his, we got general goldfiend, we loaded up his iPad with every single confirmation hearing we could think of, so he could just do nothing but read it over and over and over again. Wow. <clears throat> and we had more meetings than than the law allows. Some of them were really good. Some of them we failed at, we regrouped and we bounced back. And so you literally on game day, you know, met with him and walked him through his little uh, information sheet that we had mapped out for him. We had made him a, a like a Denny's placemat or an iHop placemat of information. And you're walking, boss. When they tell you, ask you this question, you're going to look here. Here's the answer. Here, and um, we had prepped him. We think the best possible. Now, sometimes God looks after babies and fools, and in this case, He looked after us for whatever reason. Um, the Hask or Sask Republicans had just shut down one of John McCain's bills, so they mm-hmm. turned on him that the day prior. So John McCain was really upset with his his Republican colleagues. Right. And instead of taking his venom, which he's become famous for spewing, at us, as General Goldfein, he was really targeting his own Republican colleagues that day. (laughs) And uh, that is what is one of my old bosses used to call the fifth law of thermodynamics: when the heat's on the other guy, it ain't on you. Right. (laughs) Um, It it helped that I mean. Now we were prepared, even if he would have. You know, we we had mock interviews and all that stuff. uh, But sometimes the ball bounces in the right, in the right direction for you.
1: So it made the, that confirmation a lot easier.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: What can you tell me what is, I want to go to a couple of lessons learned here. Like what is something you learned out of that kind of experience? I mean, like the, I don't know if people can appreciate to give some context. Um, when you, like you see on TV, a lot of the, department secretaries like the secretary of state or the secretary of housing and urban development or secretary of, of education, they have to go before the Senate to get confirmed, to, to be able to get their job. They can't just go ahead and take it. Um, and the same thing is true for the <clears throat> highest ranking person in the military is the chief of staff of whatever service army, Navy, air force, and the, the Marines, although their their titles are technically different, uh, that's the, the highest level. And you and the only person higher than in the military is the chairman of the yeah. Joint Chiefs of Staff. And right. you were preparing <clears throat> one of those next second level four guys to get because they, too, don't just get their job. They get sort of nominated and then they have to be confirmed by the Senate to take over that job to then be in charge of the entire Air Force. And you were preparing one of those four star generals for that job. Um, and tell me if I said that any of that wrong, technically. And my my question for you is, what is a what do you learn from being at that? I mean, that's talk about the seat of power, real power. What do you learn from being involved in that kind of environment?
0: I I think <clears throat> kind of like I mentioned earlier, with academy experiences, everybody's experience is slightly different. Um, working for uh, for General Goldfein and supporting General Goldfein, you you learn his style. He is a very demanding leader, but he is fair, he is straight up with you, and he is fun to work for. And so you you support the guy and you you believe in him so much uh, because of the type of leader he is that you would do anything. And late nights were the norm, and it is what it is. Um, but it foot stumps the, the necessity of having a team. Yeah. You know, I'm a, at, at that point in your career, lieutenant colonel level, yeah. No lo- nobody cares if I'm a contracting officer. They're, you're a guy that can get things done. Right. Your, your specific function no longer really matters. Mm. Um, so being able to develop a relationship with him where you can just take a look from him and know that, yeah, we're missing the mark, or I need to pivot this meeting to a different discussion, or I need to follow up and do something different, Right. you develop that relationship of trust, mutual trust for one another, that he knew Rhino has his back, and Rhino's going to do whatever it takes to get it done. And so you have that. Then you realize that there is no way I can do all of this on my own. So there are questions that are intel related. So I have to call the A2. There are questions that are ops related. I have to call the A3. And these are just different organizations within the Air Force. But how do I take information from a four-star general, soon to be the 21st chief of staff of the Air Force, and then I don't have time to staff it amongst all the people call a a felt another three star or two star and say, sir, Rhino here just got out of the boss's office. This is what I need and I need it in five minutes. Mm. And so it's not my authority that they're doing it. Right. I mean, they know that I'm supporting the boss. But literally, sir, heads up, this is coming in five minutes. You know right. you know, and so you develop relationships amongst the staff that they can do what we need to do because they trust that I'm not doing it for Jamie Rohn. Right. Nobody cares about him. We're doing it for the overall mission and getting General Goldfein confirmed as the 21st Chief of Staff of the Air Force.
1: Do you do and, you think there was one characteristic he had that made him an amazing leader that other people could try to you know model themselves after?
0: The art of asking questions. Okay. Number one, and I've got to do a second one. He, if a, there was, um, the other rhino, your cousin was in a meeting, um, was in a meeting and a three-star general was trying to answer a question to General Goldfein about UAVs and predators and drones. And the three-star general was stumbling and your cousin, rhino, the other rhino stood up and said, sir, if I may. Now, a lot of general officers would say, no, I'm listening to the general. Mm. General Goldfein's viewpoint is I'm listening to the smartest guy in the room who can answer the question. (laughs) I don't care if it's a major, a major general or a tech sergeant. Get me. And that was was his direction to me was get me the smartest person into this room to answer my questions. And so being able to take inputs and information from anybody, regardless of rank, and to Trust that information, and it is is absolutely amazing. One final story, we were in the car driving to the hearing, and there was a question that he asked me. I make a phone call back to the staff, and a young captain, uh, John Geyer, gives me the answer. 15 minutes later, General Goldfein quotes directly the information that young Captain Geyer gave us. Wow. Wasn't a two-star general, wasn't a three-star boss, it was this young captain who provided information via cell phone on the car ride over, and General Goldfein was able to weave that into his opening remarks at the confirmation hearing.
1: That's crazy. Uh, you 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 mentioned it, but didn't elaborate on it. When you say the art of asking questions, what is what do you mean by that?
0: Um, as a leader, especially like at a four star level or or whatever level of success, we tend and, to think, and let me
1: break into okay. like this is a CEO of any company. If you're running a startup. Uh, oh, a company. If you're a, a, a you know in a director or VP position at a major corporation, if you're a leader in your you know student body government, I think all of what you're saying when you say leader, you mean all of those kind of things. Am I oh, right?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. To to an extent, I mean, there there are clearly deviations. There's profit and loss on the industry side and whatnot, um, but leadership is leadership in a lot of key parallels. Yeah, and so the ability to to subordinate your own. I mean, you're, you're a leader for a reason. So yes, you're competent. Yes, you know, you're smart, right? But you have to be smart enough to realize where somebody else may be smarter than you. Yeah. Somebody may have a, a functional expertise greater than you. And regardless of how smart you think you are, you can't know everything. Mm-hmm. And so he has a an amazing ability to one, disarm people because, oh, my gosh, I'm talking to the chief to the future chief of staff or current chief of staff of the Air Force. He has a way of just disarming people yeah. and just making you relax. And two, he will just ask a series of questions. And none of them are really stump-the-dummy type questions.
1: Yeah, like he's not trying but to trick you.
0: No. And he's, you know, hey, I need you to help me, TQ, understand, blah, 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 blah. And how did we approach this decision or this conclusion? So he's asking key questions. And the other part is, even when we disappointed him and let him down, he never once in a group setting or even one-on-one blew up at me. Mm. You know, his his executive officer, uh, General Franks, came back and he would call me and be like, hey, Rhino, we missed a mark on that one. Mm. Why don't you come down and we we'll, we'll walk through it together, yeah, but but I'll tell you, and part of that is you got to realize where these leaders come from. John Goldfein was shot down from his f sixteen wow, and was rescued, you know, and so um that <clears throat> he's been through some stuff, right you know, and so when when things get stressful, when it gets Pentagon stressful, I'm sure he's looking at it like, uh, this isn't too bad,
1: right, like I've been shot down before.
0: Yeah, I've been through a little bit worse. I've had a few worse days than this. And so he and knows
1: he can ask the type of questions and then probably listen really well to get the insight he needs to solve whatever problem he's trying to deal with.
0: Exactly right.
1: Yeah, no, that's, I, I agree. I remember I read, I think in high school, a book called The Question Behind the Question. That's I all that about- I
0: read too, exactly right.
1: Great book. It's all about trying to figure out to listen really well to what someone is saying So you can ask the right questions to get to the answer you want. And a lot of times what stops people is having too much, I think I know everything Uh Oh, to be able to even hear the question or hear the before
0: the fall. Right. And we've all been there, right? Where you're, somebody's talking to you and before you even get the question out, they're like, I know what you're going to say. Yeah. Well, if you are, then at least give me the courtesy and respect to let me say it. And and chances are, you don't know what I'm going to say. Right. And so, yeah, a subtle his subtle way of listening, and and I think for me as a leader, I learned from him that my question mark to um, explanation point ratio,
1: hmm.
0: you know, I need to be ending sentences with more question marks than explanation points.
1: And exclamation points, the question marks we get, what would an exclamation point signify? Uh, direction.
0: TQ, yeah. go do this. This is what you're going to do. Yeah. So. <clears throat> I think if you cultivate a key leader, again, inside or outside, and I'm leading on, I've done both, um, part of your job is to develop other leaders. Yeah. That is hands down in the guidebook or definition of being a leader. And so the way you do that is not just by telling and directing people what to do. It's cultivating them and asking them questions. How do they think? How do you think? How would you approach this situation? Right. And by doing that, you're exercising their muscles, their leadership muscles, and and showing them, demonstrating to them how you would approach the problem. Now, it is far easier for me to sit back and just tell them to do it
1: mm-hmm.
0: because I said so. Right. Number one, you're gonna increase your stress and your your blood pressure because you're gonna be making every decision in your organization, which is right. never effective. Right. Number two, <clears throat> you're not gonna be developing leaders. Yeah. And that is a leader's primary job. Other people do the mission. Your primary mission is obviously set the tone, set the standards, set the the mission of where we're going, but then develop and cultivate leaders, mentor, coach, and lead every single day. That's what you do.
1: Very nice. You have had a really successful career here and then you retired uh, out of the Air Force. I know one of the things that, um, and I want you to mix two things in here. One of the things you have done even throughout your military career is invest in real estate to the point that, and, and you know, tell me if you, you don't be putting all your business in the street, but I'll say roughly between having what the military gives you is an income that you get for the rest of your life and healthcare because you retire from the military. That plus right. if you invest in real estate, everybody knows that, you know, there's a possibility for you to get passive income, meaning you've bought a property and now your renters are paying you, to live in your home. Um, people, particularly in communities of color, are nervous about the military, particularly in the post 9-11 world, that it's not for people of color. Um, but you've had a great career. Your parents had a great career. and it's given you a lot of opportunities. And uh, what we're going to talk about next in terms of post-military career um, to do a lot of things. But can you talk about how having that retirement career plus investing in real estate has given you uh, all these learnings, you got paid along the way. Awesome experiences, and now you have income for the rest of your life.
0: Yeah, no, <clears throat> um, excuse me. It, it, it's true. It's a clearly, I retired twenty years and six days um, it, from the Air Force in the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, so that that affords me uh, income for the rest of my life. And um, and to, to be
1: clear, po- so in case anybody's going to write you asking for a loan, it's not, you know forget the world type of money, but it's other money where you don't, you, you would, you don't have to have pressure of working on your life. Co-
0: correct. And that leads to the next phase, right? Um, another part of that is yes, I've invested in real estate since 2005. Um, and, uh, you know, you buy and sell across the, over the time. I'm typically a long-term investor. And, uh, I, that is where I, I love playing monopoly. And, that, that is where my passion from an investment perspective comes. I'm not a huge stock market guy, but I am very passionate about real estate. The other thing I'm extremely passionate about is being debt-free.
1: Mm.
0: And so part of this, which leads to the next chapter, is I've been debt-free since 2005. Very nice. And and for the listeners, that, that I cannot over overstate how important that is. Yeah. Um, so as I you know, as I made the decision to retire and figure out what I want to do next, those decisions that I made for real estate investing, to stay in the Air Force, to be debt-free, provided me different options, a different set of options to go on to that next chapter. And what's that next chapter? So I decided that I didn't want to go take a job and ever work for anybody again. Yeah. I'd done the Pentagon work and, you know, little stream of ants going in in the morning, out in the evening. And uh, I don't plan to do that ever again. So I, in essence, relaunched a company that I had been moonlighting with when I was a young captain, uh, a contract management company. And uh, long story short, launched uh, upon retirement, a company called McClinton and Roy. And um, McClinton and Roy is an outsourced procurement resource for federal government contractors.
1: So put that in. Do Give me another one of your analogies again, what that means for the people who may not understand all those terminologies.
0: Yeah. Uh, just yesterday, one of our academy classmates called and says, I'm, I'm starting my own business. I want to get some government contracts. Can you help walk me through the process to, uh, sec- to understand and secure a government contract? Yeah. And so we help companies navigate the federal government acquisition regulations. Why would somebody...
1: Like what kind of person wants to get a government contract
0: uh,
1: or why is that a lucrative place to build it for like that person who called you to build a business?
0: The federal government. Uh, the quick answer is federal government issues approximately four hundred fifty to five hundred billion dollars in contracts a year.
1: Oh, so like go where the cheese is type
0: of thing. Go where the cheese is. There there are some downsides in dealing with the federal government. They pay longer. Um, you got a lot of compliance regulate or regulations to comply with and whatnot. but. It is a piece of that $450 billion to $500 billion a year. Um, it's steady income. You're not going to get rich, excessively rich off of the government, but you are going to pay your bills, pay your employees' salaries and their benefits and whatnot. Well, Lockheed
1: is pretty wealthy working with the government. And, and a Lockheed right Boeing, Northrop, and-
0: absolutely. Oh, no, it is clearly a big business, and it is clearly um, – a lot of opportunity and from a small business perspective uh, the small business act and small business administration requires uh X percent approximately 20 to twenty five percent of all contracts be awarded to small businesses
1: yeah and never mind so, like for this is for people of color show what about the aspect of The federal government is
0: also required to do contracts with minorities. Absolutely. You've got minority designations. You've got veteran owned. You've got women owned um, uh, 8A programs for minorities. Absolutely right. And so there are opportunities. It's another set of opportunities uh, in dealing with the government and subcontracting with the government. But when you look at the fact that depending upon who you talk to, anywhere from 80 to 95 percent of all businesses in the U.S. are small. Yep. Um, when I looked at creating McClinton and Roy, I figured the pool of people needing help working with, uh, the federal government and understanding it. And, and I'd gotten confident that it was going to work because of my contracting experience in which companies would come in and have no idea what they were doing. Yeah. And some of these companies had multimillion dollar a year contracts with my office. Right. And, you know, some of the questions they were asking, I was like, how do you, how do you succeed? You know, but, um, I realized there was a need in this small micro niche of helping companies to do more effective business with the government, and that's what we've been doing since July of 2017, if not a little sooner. What? Uh, so you you asked how do those companies succeed? Because
1: if they didn't know what they were doing coming in to to get these multi million dollar contracts, you're like, how are you guys making any money? And the answer was the business that you started was how they succeeded. Is you helping them out? Is that was that be right?
0: I think so. I, I mean, I clearly the answer is bigger than me. Sure. Um, but you're
1: an answer to that question. Yeah,
0: we are a, an answer to that question. I mean, and since since our launch, uh, we have helped companies. Oh, Lord, I think we're up to. Uh, and again, we're a small part of helping these companies win. Uh, thirty, thirty million dollars.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, in of, terms of, of contracts awards, awarded,
0: contracts awarded. Wow, and and
1: and that's just so, what that's just like in a
0: little over a year, a year and a month.
1: Wow! So, so in a year and it, a month, you you saw a need that people needed help getting awarded contracts, and in that year of just from a standing start, you've helped get over thirty million dollars worth of contracts awarded. Correct. Wow, that's kind of crazy.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now my wife will tell you that is not thirty million dollars to our bank account. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, to be a small, again, fly on the wall, you know, it's it's been, I've been blessed to be a fly on the wall, but to be on some of the good walls, you know, yeah. and um, be a small part of, of these teams that are that are doing this.
1: Hey, this is TQ, letting you know that this is where we're going to stop for now. I hope you enjoyed the first part of the interview as much as I enjoyed being a part of it. Next time, we're going to hear much more about his procurement consulting business, how he's parlaying that business into ownership, into other businesses insights on the power of networking and the skills that it takes to be really good at it you'll also hear some more about his real estate investing career how he's overcome discrimination in his career and some good book recommendations if you enjoyed this episode please take a moment to leave a rating and review on itunes or google play